Welcome to the 452nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome historian James McWilliams to talk about American culture in the pandemic. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest, but don't wait too long. We'll be ending the regular COVID calls on March 16th with the 500th episode. As of March 7th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, in the state of Texas, 85,711 people have lost their lives to COVID-19. The state has a 61.8% vaccination rate. South Korea, 8,957 have lost their lives to COVID-19. South Korea has an 86% vaccination rate reported as of today. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, COVID-19 killed my brother and sister a week apart. It didn't have to happen. This was written by Michelle Ginfin and published November 7th, 2021 in the Washington Post. When the call came that my brother and sister were both in the hospital, I said, COVID. It was a statement, not a question, I knew. Despite our begging and cajoling, they had both refused the vaccines. I immediately began the grieving process, skipping right over denial and bargaining. There was no denying the odds and bargaining required faith. Anger was my overwhelming emotion. As much as I loved them, I was angry at the suffering they were causing themselves, the anguish they were causing their family and many friends, and the trauma they were inflicting on the healthcare personnel overwhelmed with cases, including theirs. The next few days were a roller coaster, vacillating between paralyzing depression and panic attacks. My heart raced, I could not breathe. I did not know emotions could cause such physical pain. My head throbbed, my heart ached, my stomach burned, my limbs tingled. I knew the rituals of death, but I would not be allowed to sit beside them or sing to them as they departed. Hospitals could only make time to give updates to one person, so we awaited reports that we would then pass along to others. My cell phone became my lifeline, just as the oxygen masks were theirs. I carried my phone constantly in my hand, so I could hear and viscerally feel all the texts and phone calls flooding in. I stopped using my electric toothbrush because two minutes was too long to lay down the phone. I stopped reading newspapers because I could not abide any more bad news. I didn't know what day it was. I Googled everything I could about COVID-19, learned the things the doctors and nurses in their kindness had left unsaid. I bookmarked funeral homes, newspaper obituary pages, and probate checklists in my favorites. When offered food, I was surprised I was capable of hunger. Struggling communications in three time zones meant days began early, sometimes at 3 a.m. I longed for evening, 
when there would be no more calls or texts, yet dreaded the void when there was nothing I could do other than wallow in self-pity and anguish. We waited for the inevitable. We prayed, hoping for a miracle, knowing there would be not knowing there would not be one. My brother repeatedly ripped off his mask and begged to go home. The doctor suggested sedation and eventually intubation. Within a week of that first call, my brother died. My brother was a single parent who had raised his daughter from the age of two. He was a gregarious rugby player, his manner full of grace and blarney. He was a friend to everyone, and his greeting always warmed the soul of others. We began preparations for his final rest while moving immediately to the impending death of my sister. I was numb. I repeated information on the phone so many times throughout the day, I forgot what I had said to whom, and my voice was hoarse. I fretted that I had forgotten an important detail or left someone off the call list. I called people by the wrong name. I said, I love you to people I barely know, and I meant it because they loved my siblings. I woke one morning, and for a brief instant, I did not remember my brother was gone or that my sister would surely follow him. Then I remembered and wondered why the sun dared shine. My sister repeatedly pulled off her mask and begged to go home. The doctor suggested hospice, and she died a week after her brother. My sister is my hero. She was a military veteran who served a year as an army nurse in Vietnam. She was an outstanding nurse and later an entrepreneur. Her husband had died years before and she had no children, but her open house and heart had given her many friends. My siblings no longer needed masks. They have gone home, but not to the home they sought from their hospital beds. My brother and sister lived full lives, but I know they could have been with us longer had they been vaccinated. My heart is doubly broken. We have lost my brother's hearty laugh, my sister's dry wit, and their loving arms. The article is COVID-19 Killed My Brother and Sister a Week Apart. It Didn't Have to Happen by Michelle Genthan and appeared in the Washington Post, November 2021. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today. I've been looking forward to this one. Let me introduce my guest, James McWilliams. James McWilliams is currently writing a biography of the Southern poet, Frank Stanford. He's written about a wide range of interests, including the American South, food and agriculture, animal ethics, memory, and the poetics of place. His work has appeared in literary venues, ranging from Runner's World to the Paris Review, including the Virginia Quarterly Review, The New Yorker, and Harper's. He lives in Austin, Texas, but spends as much time as he can these days in New Orleans. And he's taught history at Texas State University since the last century, and his face has appeared in People Magazine. I did not know that. Jimmy McWilliams, welcome to COVID Calls. Oh, happy to be on. Thanks for having me. People Magazine? Yeah, that my face was in People Magazine in 2010. Um, you know, it was a big moment in the magazine's history. Uh, Clearly. It's, it's just a t- tiny author's photo is all it was. <laughs> so I like to start the way I g- generally do, just find out where you're calling from, what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Yeah, I'm uh, calling in from Austin, Texas. And the pandemic situation in 
Austin is, um, you know, people are pretty relaxed these days. The numbers are down, hospitalizations are down, deaths are down. Um, you will go into grocery stores and maybe see about half the population masked. Um, I teach a class with 360 people. I'd say mask wearing has diminished significantly in the last couple of months. Um, all that said, I mean, Austin throughout the pandemic seemed to take the precautions, the recommended precautions much more seriously than the rest of the state. I had quite alarming experiences at the height of the pandemic, traveling to other parts of Texas, more rural parts of Texas, where quite honestly, you did not see a mask wearing person indoors. And the governor of Texas, you know, uh, decreed that this was okay. You couldn't have mask mandates. And so there was a very large disconnect, I think is true throughout the United States. This is not unique to Texas between, you know, urban areas and, and suburban and rural areas. But I'd say right now, and, you know, again, in the urban center of Austin, Texas, things are, things are pretty relaxed. I'm not, I'm not uh, feeling the anxiety of the pandemic like I was uh, six months ago. Just full disclosure to the audience, I've known James McWilliams a long time. And I want to say you're not a person who ever shies away from a hard conversation. And in fact, you're pretty fascinated by people's behavior generally and in Texas. So when you're traveling, you're describing this point at the height of the pandemic and you're in places where people are not masking. Did you engage the conversation or you just let it be? I think what's so distressing about the one of the more distressing discoveries to come out of the pandemic is how um, how how disinclined we are to listen to each other. And I think that and I have to say, like, I, I would include myself in this. Like, I, I did not want to hear I would not want to hear somebody talk to me about um, you know vaccine skeptics, for example. And I actually did have some people that I knew fairly, well, I shouldn't say fairly well. I had, had some acquaintances who knew me well enough to email me some vaccine skeptics um, podcasts. And I found my reaction to be um, a, a kind of immediate shutdown of what they had to say. Like, I mean, I found my reaction to be very extreme. I did not want to listen to what they had to say. And I'm my to turn that around my thought was no nobody here wants to hear what i have to say about masking about vaccines there's just and again i'm including my i'm including myself in this there's something about there was something about the pandemic that really tapped into the nature of how just uh dichotomized public discourse has become and how unwilling we are to listen to each other and I think that's really unfortunate because at the end of the day, I think that all of us are placing our faith in something. We're all practicing faith. I mean, I have faith in Fauci. I couldn't tell you how the vaccine works. I couldn't tell you much about the medical research behind it. I just happen to have a certain kind of faith and expertise. Like that's the expert that I'm choosing to trust. Yeah. And my sense is that the people who were 
skeptical of the vaccines, didn't want to mask. They had the reasons for feeling that way, but it was just they had placed their faith in different sources. Uh, of course, we probably are well aware of who those sources were. Um, you know, a lot of the conspiracy theorists and, you know, uh, Alex Jones or Joe Rogan or, or, or whoever. And, you know, I think there could have been during the pandemic a valid discussion over why we are choosing to place our faith where we are choosing to place our faith rather than I'm for science and you're not for science. That's not a discussion that's going to get you anywhere, but that's kind of how things were kind of prearranged. That's how you approach people. I'm for science. science people put signs in their yard. I'm for science. I support yeah. science. Well, you know, to be for science, I'm for science, sure. But I mean, I'm still placing my faith in, in, in a certain kind of scientific expertise. And I'm going to guess even the scientific experts are going to at some point say that, yeah, we're placing our faith that we are right. Um, and so I did become a little impatient with even people who I fully agreed with about the vaccine, who um, uh, I guess sort of approached the discussion, approached the issue or the debate as if it were a kind of black and white, right or wrong kind of thing. And I, I, I so, so I, I'm getting way off your question, which was, did I engage these people in other environments? And the answer is no, because I felt myself locked into this dichotomy that I was just as guilty of participating in. And it was one where it just said, hey, there's no, there's no yeah. middle ground here for us to wade into and have a discussion. And I guess what I would say is like that middle ground was faith, which is we all chose where to put our faith. And there could have been a discussion about what is it about Joe Rogan? Why do you trust Joe Rogan more than than Fauci? I would that would be an interesting discussion to have. Yeah, I really appreciate you. Too. There's two parts of that I want to go a little further with. I mean, one is the problem that you put your finger on that if you could just have a discussion about the masks. Yeah. I mean, that could be an interesting yeah. discussion and there yeah. could be some back and forth and you might find out some interesting Thanks. And people have all kinds of, you know, I will say the misperceptions about masks. Maybe you get sick by wearing the mask or early on the pandemic, the idea that healthcare workers needed the mask. And so, mm -hmm. you know, if you were open to the conversation, you might learn something and, and from both sides. But this has been one of those periods in American history when the mask was a flag, I think, in certain parts of, of the country and the places you're describing, maybe parts of rural East Texas, rural West Texas, right. um, maybe maybe right there in Travis County, as far as I know, but mm -hmm. that to engage that conversation, you were going to be, you're two seconds away from a conversation about Trump, about January 6th, mm. about a whole raft of issues right, right. that just become so loaded up right. on one, on one symbol. That's, that's one side of it. And the other part, you know, I had the trust Fauci sign in my yard. I was living in Princeton early in the pandemic. I had the sign. Yeah. So somebody came knocking on my door and said, I want to know what you think about yeah. Fauci and why you have this sign. I don't think I'd be too open to that. I'd be like, hey, look at the sign. Right. My mind is made up here. And I have not platformed anti-vaxxers on this program. The anti-vaxxers are one thing. The vaccine skeptics are another. And I do think there's it's worth drawing a distinction between those two because any scientific any scientific development, any medicine, any um, 
you know, technological innovation. I mean, there's always, always, always room for skepticism. And, and I, I certainly, I think, again, back to my earlier example, when I was uh, approached uh, with some podcasts of vaccine skeptics, um, I do feel like my, my feeling was, look, I want to give this part of me. There's part of me that wants to give this my attention. I want to hear what, what I don't want to hear an anti-vaxxer because I think that's there's I don't really understand the point of that whatsoever. What am I going to learn from an anti-vaxxer? Nothing. Could I learn something from a vaccine skeptic? Yes, possibly. Um, but my feeling was that in the environment that we're in, where people are getting sick at rapid rates, where people were dying at very rapid rates, now's not the time to have that discussion. It was really it was really a question of um, timing. It was a question of context. Um, but I would like to think there's a part of me that would listen to people that I disagreed with um, and would would give them a fair hearing. And and again, like you, I didn't. I because it was because people were getting very sick and people were dying at very high rates. And as your opening story reminds us, so much of this was avoidable. And the fact that the skepticism was being raised at that time, I think, was problematic. Now, what going back to the anti-vaxxers, what I do think would be worth value and still is worth exploring is why they feel that way in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary. And of course, that gets you into all kinds of um, conspiracy theories and yeah. distrust of authority and skepticism of expertise. There's... Um, people who feel as if they actually derive tremendous power from questioning and digging their heels in against the, the status quo. And these are often people who don't have power in other areas. So all of that, trying to get, develop a cultural understanding for why people would be anti-vaxxers um, is one thing. There's nothing to be said about the science of anti-vaccines. There's whatever right. kind of scientific claims they're making are going to be bogus again, but back to the skeptics, um, you know, I think as time goes on, we will see that, yeah, I mean, these, the vaccines were not perfect. They could have perhaps been improved. They could have maybe been administered more efficiently, whatever. We're going to do that in time. We're going to figure that out in time, but given their overall effectiveness in the moment, I just feel as if it made more sense to question that, to question, to ask these questions later on when this thing is in under control. I, yeah, I'm with you on that. I think it, I think that's fair, and it's it it is a scale issue. And I think under ordinary conditions, um, coming to understand vaccine skepticism or full anti-vaccination counterculture subculture would be the kind of thing that you would immerse yourself in. I could see yourself writing about that. You've written about the history of all kinds of subcultures that are medic medically skeptic, anti-medical, anti-expert. Right. Um, but something switched, I think, when the, the scale issue, maybe there's so many lives on the line and somehow it's not a it's not a uh, it's not a cultural uh, backwater or curiosity anymore. That that's one that's one big part of it, I think. But I I'm at cross purposes with myself, frankly, because I'm the person who always says, you know, when there's a mass shooting Senators, you know, NRA paid for senators will always go in the media and say, now is not the time for politics. Right. Now is not the time for politics. <laughs> and I always I'm my reaction is, 
no, now is the time for politics. The disaster is the time for politics. Yeah. Because the disaster is an extension of the politics. So I guess I'm sort of confessing a little bit to you that I, I have felt a little queasy yeah. at times about my reluctance to wade into some of these, so let's stick with the vaccination issue. And, but it's also because it's very personal. Like my brother is an anti-vaxxer and he and I have had a, a bad falling out over it. Yeah. Yeah. I've had, I've had some falling out, uh, two, two people I've, I've really kind of pushed to the periphery of my life because of it. Uh, but again, I don't think it's a permanent thing. I think it's a contextualized thing. It's a timing thing. I mean, if the ship is sinking to use a very simple example and a bunch of people run down and start bailing it out with little buckets and, 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 and it's starting to actually work a little bit. You don't stop and say, Hey, let's stop doing this and maybe undertake a big analysis of this bucket <laughs> approach right. because it's working. Okay. It's working. It might not be ideal. I don't know. Have you met historians? I mean, they might Yeah, they oh, might. keep going, but all right. Yeah. <laughs> but, and so, Have you been to an AHA meeting? <laughs> yeah. But when the ship, you know, when the ship gets here, when the ship gets ashore and everybody's safe. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's analyze it. And that's what I mean by the timing of it. And so I, I hope that you, when, again, when the pandemic is under some semblance of control, I hope that you and your brother can reconnect and maybe have that conversation in a more, um, you know, in, in a proper context. And this is exactly what I intend to do with the two people yeah. who, who I've, I've kind of cut out of my life at the moment is to kind of circle back and say, Hey, can we, can we go back to that? I want to under, I want to understand. Um, and I think the impulse is always just in general to dismiss, to dismiss people whom we really deeply disagree with. And it's a very human impulse and maybe, maybe one benefit to take out of this whole like the mess of the discourse around the vaccines and masks and uh, the politicization of, of just basic health measures um, would be to kind of hopefully look back and try to figure out how this could have been, how the conversation could have been more productive, you know, how, how people like how, how people who just, you know, trusted the science, trusted Fauci, trusted the vaccines, could figure out a way to at least have some understanding of why somebody might be a vaccine skeptic or even an anti-vaxxer. Um, I just don't know the, if, the, uh, if the alternative, which is to just shut other people out, is, is I don't know if, if that's any better. Um, I, I, and, I, and again, I'm thinking about how I mean, in general, our, our, the United States has, in my life, never been in a position where there is such deep discontent and disagreement and really cultural disdain um, uh, within largely, you know, I mean, this is all very, very much, of course, linked to Donald Trump and what Trump has done to the political landscape in, in the United States. And it might be irrecoverable, but I, I don't think we're going to find out if we just continue to shut people uh, out whom, whom we disagree with. And so, you know, back to your example of the people in rural Texas not wearing masks. Does it make me angry? Yeah, it did make me angry to, to see that. Um, but once that anger dissipates, I find myself curious. 
and yeah. um, and and I think that's that's the impulse that I want to eventually um, guide my thoughts and insights and investigation into into our pandemic response. Is there? Let me just stay with this a little bit longer because it's really helping me. I. Um, I mean, you studied the Civil War and the Reconstruction. And what do you know about the history of sort of redemption and repair in American families in, in points like this? And I'm not talking here. I mean, we could have a whole separate, we should have a whole separate conversation. Maybe we'll get to it about race and around opportunities and missed opportunities in the American South for redemption there. Right. which is still very much needed. Right. But, I, but I'm talking about even just in our own families, when you get on the cross sides of an issue and it becomes a national issue and so volatile and angry. Um, is there something we have in American history that can kind of guide us some pathway? And I, and I ask this because, again, it's pretty clear that just bringing more evidence to people you disagree with on a lot of these, it's like, no, I have another peer-reviewed study. Even my brother, who's anti-vaxxer, was showing me peer-reviewed, so-called peer-reviewed. He's like, he's like, he was trying to appeal to me. He's like, yeah, yeah. hey, man, I have a peer-reviewed study here. I'm like, that's not a real peer review. So I'm like, I'm arguing about peer review with my brother? Like, this is going yeah. nowhere. We, needed a, we need a path to some redemption and repair. Right. And I mean, you're absolutely right in that. I mean, sure, we could go back to the Civil War and look at you. Are you thinking specifically about how the Civil War divided families? I think that's a good example. Like the Vietnam, it's some just often Anything, wars of yeah. Vietnam, I mean, but I mean, also religion. I mean, yeah. there's so many moments in American history. Of people find themselves totally divided in their families with violence, mm -hmm. but then they seek some way to come back together. Well, and, and I think that if we're going to talk about redemption or, 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 or sort of repairing, um, you know, broken relationships within families or within communities or, gosh, I mean, you know, even within even within academic departments um, over not so much COVID, but like other issues, race, race, race issues in, in particular, um, I mean, you look at what happens to an academic department when, when it comes time to hire somebody, there's always a big, you know, always divisions that form. Um, and I guess back, I think the what you said is absolutely right, which is at some point, I think we have to come to terms with the fact that being right is not what this is about. I don't know of any relationship that has been truly repaired by one side convincing the other side that they were right and that they were wrong. Right. Uh, and so I think we are getting into um, really fascinating psychological terrain because if you're going to repair things with your brother, you guys can throw peer reviewed articles at each other for the rest of your life and you're not going to convince each other no. of the position that you want to convince each other of. However, if you let your brother know that you're interested in actually fully understanding if you can come to him in the best faith possible and say, I'm, I want to, I'm, I want to fully understand why you are taking the position you're taking against, against all this evidence to the contrary. And 
And then he did the same for you. I feel like if there was just a sincere, just a posture of sincerity even would be a step in the right direction. And that might be all that's possible. In other words, all that all that you might be able to achieve is the posture of listening. And yeah. Then then the next step is to take this issue that has been so divisive and and move it out of of your relationship. Find other ways to relate with your brother. I I don't because I don't think the goal of convincing anybody of of the truth or falsity of what they believe is the way to go about it. I think convincing them that you actually take them seriously is all you can do. And if you can do that and then find something else to talk about with your brother, that might be the best you can do. And so that's, that would be the kind of redemption that I would seek. I mean, and if you want to use the South as an example of this, um, race in the south is an issue where it's 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 incredibly complicated obviously um and you know if you're if you've lived in your south your whole life you will have at some point encountered usually somebody much older who holds in truly antiquated racial views and it's always a awkward as a white individual to hear, you know, another white individual who's much older speak or think in a way that's patently offensive. What do you do in that situation? Uh, And I've encountered it. And to think that you're going to convince this person to see racial issues in a truly progressive light is, is, thoroughly naive. Um, and so I think the redemption is a very unsatisfying kind of redemption, but it is, okay, I, oh, I mean, one option is to just completely dismiss this person, and that's certainly a viable option. The other is to let them know why you disagree, to let them know why you disagree with their views that whatever, whatever kind of offensive racial stereotype you want to come up with, why you think that is the wrong opinion to have. Let them know, which I make it a point of doing, and then frankly, move on to another topic. Mm -hmm. And I realize that that's not ideal. It's hardly ideal. But when we talk about redemption, I think that that's the kind of redemption we have to seek is just, hey, let's not agree to even, not even agree to disagree. Let's just Put ourselves in a position where I want you to, I've heard you, I've heard your opinion. Now I want you to hear mine. Okay. Now let's, let's move on to the next. Right. That's not ideal. And that, and that, that does nothing for large scale sort of racial healing, but it's provisional and it is a pragmatic way. I think to seek some measure of redemption.
let me just remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to writer and historian James McWilliams today. And let me um, let me ask you, I'm just going to keep going somewhat in the same area. When I ask you about January 6th, 2021, I watched it at home with my two kids. And that I remember that whole afternoon, I remember thinking, I wondered if you were watching it. I don't think we talked that day, but... Um, and just as it unfolded, and I remember it in some ways kind of similar to September 11 for me, yeah. watching it and not under, not comprehending it. I was like, this is a guy's like climbing up the, yeah. they're like climbing in the window of the Capitol. Like how many times you and I walked in front of that building yeah. when we were in graduate school and, and you know, I mean, in, yeah. in those days it was easier to get to the building it just seemed there's some things just seemed completely impossible the cognitive dissonance was so powerful and to watch that and to actually not really comprehend what was happening now you yeah. probably had a better handle on what was happening but you know what were you thinking that day so it's really interesting because a, a few days before uh you know there were reports of people traveling to dc for the protest and i was talking to uh a couple of friends from college about it. And I, at some point after the election, had come to the realization that we Trumpers were at least a segment of the people who voted for Trump were, were true believers in an absolute falsehood. And that's a terrifying, that's a, that is, that is a terrifying phenomenon to have a large number of people who are true believers in an absolute falsehood. And I'd spent a lot of time thinking about how that was possible. And I think that one of the truly most dangerous um, developments that took place um, during the Trump administration and around the Trump administration was this eerie ability to remake reality into whatever you wanted it to be. And there was a wide, wide variety of techniques, media-driven techniques to, to allow this to happen. But I, you know, I realized that if you can create the reality that you want and get people to be true believers in it, you have the pretext for very serious violence. You have the pretext for a kind of anarchy and I and, and I, all that was sort of intellectualized for me. I mean, it's something I'd spent a lot of time thinking about, particularly after the the election and and um, uh, and then you know leading into January. So when I was having this conversation with my friends, I said, and I remember when I said it, thinking, "Do I sound hyperbolic? Do I sound unhinged?" But I said, "There's going to be blood," and they kind of were like, uh, no, it's going to be rowdy, but there's not. So I guess in some ways, yeah, I mean, I agree with you that watching it, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is really happening. But when I was watching it, I'm like, well, of course this is happening. And in fact, honestly, I can't believe it wasn't worse. Really? And um, because, again, of this terrifying, absolutely terrifying mass psychological commitment to a false reality when 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 that happens um it's very easy to kind of pull a collective trigger and 
in many ways, uh, I think, you know, Trump will, we will, we will look back and see that as a, as a dictator, he was a mastermind and, and remains one. I, I don't think this is over. And, yeah. and I find it, um, in many ways, I think it's kind of, uh, disturbing in some ways how, how much we were surprised by it because, you know, I mean, hindsight's everything, but, but looking back and looking, looking at the nature of the commitment to a set of false beliefs and, and, and the, you know, initially when you hear people utter belief in complete falsehood, you think, well, they don't really believe that. In other words, there are ulterior right. motives. There are ulterior motives yeah, for the grift to, to believe that the election was stolen. There are just there are other reasons for them to say these things, but they don't fully believe it. But they do fully believe it, and I think that's why January six was not entirely surprising. Um, and you know, I, I again, I hope it's something that we become increasingly uh, attuned to. And a lot of this just goes back to language. I mean, you know, it's <laughs> the, the, the way that language has become so destabilized. Interestingly, this destabilization of language began in the academy. I mean, you know, if you look at the, if you look at the history of literary analysis, it's words don't, <laughs> words <laughs> yeah. don't mean yeah, what, I know. what they mean. You know, they're embedded with all kinds of messages and power signals and implications and, I think we've seen that taken to a disturbing yeah. logical extreme in some way. Not that I'm blaming <laughs> January 6th on French literary theory, but uh, you know, if you wanted to actually do some creative dot connecting, uh, you, 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 yeah, look, all of us who are in science technology studies in the last two years have had this moment. Where we're like, look, we told you to be skeptical of science, but come on, <laughs> like. You know, yeah, like, uh, I, did, I did have this, this, I was teaching a, a, a research seminar and I, you know, encouraged my students to do things like, you know, practice skepticism of the sources that you encounter, interrogate those sources, don't take them at face value. Yeah. And I realized as I was describing how they should approach historical documents that I was essentially providing a list of qualities that are essential to being a conspiracy theorist during the Trump era. Yeah, you were one step away from telling them to go to Comet Pizza and yeah. and do a the No, but I think this I mean this is really interesting because it's it's um because I have wondered a lot about that crowd. Yeah. on January 6th. And of course there's a lot of different kind of people in the crowd. The front yeah. line had a great hour about this where they actually tracked white supremacists they, you know, they track Proud Boys, yeah, specific Proud Boys in the crowd. So there's that, yeah, and there's QAnon shaman. So there's another sort of piece, and there's a lot of people just with their Trump hats who just walk down to the Capitol, and then they found themselves next thing you know walking through. I mean, some of that video where people are still walking in the line, yeah, as if they thought it was like it's okay on this day to take a tour of the Capitol. Um, <laughs> There's so many different things happening simultaneously, but but let me ask you a little bit more about it because I do I think I want to be careful not to dismiss some of this as madness or temporary. It sounds like you haven't. I mean, we're having these discussions right now about Putin. Is Putin a lone 
maniac like Trump was on January 6th. He's got a small group of people surrounding him. They tell him he's brilliant, that he's impervious to the world outside, and he can cause a lot of mayhem because he truly believes. Or is he a rational actor yeah. who's working a grift here? He's getting rich. He's working a plan. And part of the plan is that a lot of people are going to have to die. But that's not he doesn't care about that part. And I think we got caught. And I think that binary is actually not very helpful. And I think we got caught in yeah. that with Trump, too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I um, no, I, I think I think with these, you know, megalomaniacal figures, whatever, Putin or, or, or Trump, at some point, you actually fully believe in your own fiction. In other words, whatever, whatever, whatever kind of reality you have constructed for yourself, you actually do believe it. And within that reality, um, you become a bit of a mastermind. And I, I think you know it's it's possible that that Putin has you know he created this reality that that he sees NATO as an aggressive force, um, and within that uh, within that reality within that sort of context i would argue that he's not behaving as a random lone madman i'm going to suggest that he is behaving in a really deeply calculated fashion and we don't know how it's going to turn out one possibility is he might wind up with ukraine and that will be i think perhaps evidence of a really cynical calculation that he was correct about. Now, Trump is very similar in the sense that, you know, you create this reality that the election was stolen, that the 2020 election was stolen. Eventually you come to believe in it. And within the context of that, you become masterful at manipulating the media, manipulating your base, um, castigating certain individuals, praising other individuals um, in a way that you can become terrifyingly effective. Now, that I think is how we have to think about the people who were protesting on January 6th. I think that they um, became very convinced with um, like I said earlier, they became true believers, not just in falsehoods, but falsehoods represented by um, a quote unquote charismatic yeah. leader. And so, you know, you think about all the kind of factors that are involved in um, a successful dictatorial regime or an accept, a, a successful authoritarian uh, takeover. And, and it's all there. And there is plenty of examples throughout history of regular people getting sucked into a terrifyingly dangerous idea and living their lives according to it. So I think, you know, I think we're seeing that in, in the United States right now. No, I don't think it's over. I don't think it's random. I don't think it's a blip. I think it's, uh, you know, um, I think it's it's a very it's a very entrenched phenomenon. Let me bring it back to the pandemic then, because I was talking with actually with Virginia Heffernan just a couple of days ago about this, and we actually she reminded me I had kind of forgotten that Trump had COVID, nearly died. Yeah, and that moment where he goes to the portico and takes off the mask, <laughs> yeah. 
this yeah. cinematic gesture. And I think at that yeah. moment, the convergence of the of the pandemic and with what was coming with the election just a couple weeks after that and the and the the aftermath of that the January 6th it's all connected i think in part it's connected to trump's grandiosity i think he actually really believed coming through that experience that he was truly i mean yeah. i don't know what the guy thought larger than life beat this virus tougher than anybody ever thought he was you know yeah. uh, and then also the the um Mussolini-esque nature mm -hmm. of the gesture, yeah. addressing the nation, knowing that every news organization was going to cover every drop of sweat on his eyebrow to remove the mask in that way. I felt like that was a real turning point. Mm. But I've asked a lot of people about this. And a lot of people are like not as convinced that the pandemic had much to do with January 6th, but I think they're connected. Yeah, that's a really fascinating, I think, connection. Um, and, you know, what was so disturbing about the effectiveness of that gesture, at least in terms of shoring up his, his base, you know, removing the mask, as you point out, after almost dying of um, COVID, was the fact that he was tapping into deep cultural, deep, very, very deep cultural um, like affinities that we have in the United States. There was something actually, so what is he tapping into? Well, he's tapping into this sense of individualism. I'm not going to, as an individual, I'm not going to be dictated. I'm not going to allow public opinion or I'm not gonna allow an outsider to tell me what to do. If I wanna get up and take this mask off, I'm gonna take this mask off. Yeah. And he's tapping a deep, deep, sort of deeply mythologized aspect of American culture, which is that yeah. you should go at it alone. You should be an individual. It's extremely Emersonian. And if you- I was thinking to, John Wayne, you went for Emerson. I think yours is better, but same. If you wanna truly be terrified about uh, Trump, go read Emerson's Self-Reliance. You know, we always read that essay in this with the kind of <laughs> these rose colored glasses and we see it as an example of the, um, you know, the radically individualized, the trusting your gut ethic, the uh, not being swayed by others. And, you know, I mean, I think 99 out of 100 readings of that essay is going, at least in the United States, is going to be, um, you know, it's quoted, you know, it's quoted positively. People have sure. little Andersonian taglines on their signature. Trust your gut. Don't let other people tell you what to think. Um, make your choices according to your own your own belief system. Um, sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? And and so for Trump to get up and remove his mask, I I thought, well, yeah, this is a uh, this is taking that myth and 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 uh, that we've all been quite enamored of in the United States and and turning it on its head and saying, hey, this is this is this is where it can end up. This is where a lack of trust in authority or a ra radical individualism or trusting your gut, here's where it can lead. Um, it was a very dangerous gesture that was widely praised. So I don't think that Trump sits around reading Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance, but he certainly behaves it as if he had. He doesn't need to read it. He, he absorbs, he absorbs culture. I mean, that's one of his, yeah. one of his gifts, I think. He's, he's 
truly emblematic of a, a you're right a sort of american individualist ethos gone totally grift gone mm. totally it, totally cashing in yeah. on that but there's still a distinction to be made but you mentioned alex jones earlier i mean some of these some of these people who are in trump's orbit in the in the um you know in the information sphere if you will in the echo sphere in the conspiracy sphere they're in the grift man i mean they're just they're whatever yeah. he says they got they're selling the keychain and they're doing very well yeah but again it's hard to it when in the when the moment really comes the the moment of violence i think all those people were there together yeah it's funny i you know every time i see this is just kind of a, a little hypothesis that i have but every time i see alex jones interviewed or quoted do you see him at whole foods i have seen him at whole foods I yes knew it. I, I have I seen him at whole foods with his such an austin thing but then you saw willie nelson in the parking lot yeah right right <laughs> sorry what did he no, do no what was he buying? i see, I see what i see in alex jones and um and i think this is an idea worth exploring is i actually see like deep terror like anxiety and i think part of this anxiety comes from the fact that like alex jones or you know people like alex jones these conspiracy theorists um they began as entertainers and they began knowing they were entertainers and i think i read somewhere years ago that alex jones essentially said look i'm i'm entertaining i'm not here to deliver the 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 word from on high I'm here to entertain people who want to be granted a kind of bizarre and very sick form of entertainment. But this is what he, I think, in his own mind, thought that he was providing. But at some point, I think he realized that, oh, actually, people are taking what I'm saying as gospel truth. Now, I think he wasn't going to back away from it. He wasn't, you know, then the decision is, do I back away from this and say, no, I'm just an entertainer? Or do you go in the other direction and actually become the oracle uh, that people believe you to be. And he became the oracle that people yeah. believe him to be. And on some level, I mean, if, you know, if I just think if you, <laughs> if you're a human being with just even some, some moral or emotional sensitivity on some level, that has to be utterly terrifying um, to be in that position. So I'm not, I'm not in any way, expressing sympathy for him. I'm glad he's feeling that terror, but I think there is something going on with a lot of these conspiracy theorists, who, theorists who at some point during the Trump administration went from being just kind of crackpot entertainers to being like figures of great authority. And I don't think they are truly at ease with that authority. That's really interesting. I want to, I want to, let's go a little further with this because I think, you know, the American South particularly has a long history of ideological entrepreneurs yeah. come out of churches. Yeah. I mean, I think it, just when you were talking, I was thinking of, you know, we're thinking of Joe Rogan. I was thinking of Sam Kinison. Yeah. You know, Sam Kinison started as a preacher. He didn't like that. <laughs> so he ended up as a, as a stand-up comedian and a movie star. And he could have ended up with a podcast with yeah. a QAnon podcast and the same skills would have come to bear bill hicks yeah very similar different politics yeah but he's a comedian but bill hicks was up there preaching us a, a, a mode of living 
I think a lot of people really get into Bill Hicks. They're like, this guy was he, this is ideology I can really get on, get on board with. And there's a southern aspect to it. Yeah. It's not only, but a lot, it's a there's it's connected with the church. It's connected somehow with a part of the country where people are a little more comfortable questioning expertise, yeah. making th- those decisions for themselves. I mean, we're that tapping, has a deep history. Yeah, we're tapping into a kind of charismatic populism, as I think what we're what we're getting at. And there is certainly, I mean, this is a, certainly a nationwide phenomenon, but there is a there is a very much a southern flavor to it. And you know, you take somebody like Joel Osteen, the 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 preacher the of the the megachurch in I guess is, is it in Houston? I think and um, but you know, I think I think with somebody like Osteen, yes, he has he has a you know very large flock of very dedicated followers. Um, but I think on some level, Osteen knows what he's up to. I, I you know again, I can't sit here and give you proof for it, but like <laughs> something tells me that Osteen kind of knows the game that he is playing, and and frankly. The stakes are very different for somebody like Joel Osteen than for somebody like Alex Jones. I mean, Alex Jones, the stakes are uh, you can burn down the Capitol because of Alex Jones. With with Joel Osteen, you know, I, I'm not so sure that the stakes are quite as high. No. Mm-hmm. But but what I think what you're getting at is this kind of uh, charismatic populism that somehow provides this is an interesting i think uh, aspect of populism populism in the u.s is it some has to somehow satisfy our dual quest for community and individualism at the same time and mm. you know you look at the the january 6 rioters and this is just a very extreme version of, of of a larger movement but you look at the january 6 rioters and they are behaving and glorifying both individualism but they're doing so as as a community. They're doing so, you know. There there there's a kind of communal power in what they're doing. They're yeah. very much drawing on each other, but they're also glorifying their own individuality. And I do think that um, this is this is a very psychological psychologically satisfying balance for a lot of people to have. I think there's a lot of people who generally feel quite marginalized. In, 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 in when it comes to expertise or authority or, sure. you know, whatever kind of power you want to think about, they, they, they don't feel like they have it. And so there's a deep insecurity there. And when, you know, I think somebody like, like Osteen or, 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 or uh, Alex Jones or, or, or Donald Trump, these kind of populists, uh, what they do is they, reassure people who are feeling insecure that they have a community there's people it's it's almost like a support group but then at the same time they they assure them that they as individuals have far more power than they're aware of and we're going to help you we're going to help you find it now it's a very ugly expression of power but you know i think what trump essentially did was to allow a lot of poor white people to express their grievances and to validate the expression of those grievances whereas you know the rest of decent society has said, no, you can't, you, you can't say that anymore. You can't think that anymore. You can't uh, behave that way anymore. I think you're into something really powerful here because I mean, look at a country with, without a strong labor union and compared to other industrialized countries without a strong labor movement um, with, with very tepid connection to, you know, democratic socialism 
no national health care. I mean, it's such an outlier compared to other countries. Yeah. This, and I, I think it's really, I like your insight a lot because I've talked to a lot of guests on COVID calls who are public health experts and they talk, they describe this in, in their language. Yeah. The problem of this pandemic has been at various moments, like how do you connect, how do you, how do you inspire people to think about their individual role in a big project right. in a country where we are always right. talking to people about health as a personal thing, it's a personal choice. In fact, a lot of health, I used to have a health care plan called personal choice. <laughs> My personal choice. There's a list of doctors I got to choose. They, they've, it's pre-decided. Yeah. It's not a personal choice. It's an enormous system, but that's a powerful concept in healthcare in America. It's very strange. I mean, living in South Korea right now, totally bonkers. Yeah. This, this struggle between individualism and, and community on certain key issues. And I think that populism, I like where you're going with that. I, and I do see there's a strong connection here in how we've had trouble communicating with people about the, the need to come together as a community to fight a virus that doesn't care about you individually. Right. And this is, I think, again, another paradox at the core of the reactionary politics in this country is like never before have we needed, well, no, that's not safe. I wouldn't say never before, but we very badly needed a sense of the common good. We very much have, uh, we, we're very much in need of a, an ethic, a popular ethic that focuses on, on the common good. This is particularly true in healthcare and vaccines. Um, and of course, the reactionary movement against that is this is the paradox. It is rooted in a commun. It's a communal response to the common good. I mean, but it it just somehow again scratches the itch for individualism. But this is a this is a movement. Um, what we're seeing in this country right now, the 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 you know, Trumpism is a movement. It is it is a it is a community of people seeking to undermine the notion of community in this country. And it's just, yeah, it's a paradox. It's, it's a very difficult one to, to understand. And clearly, not that we really needed to be reminded of this, but we're not driven by rational. We're not, you know, the American political impulse in particular is not, is not uh, driven by the impulses of rationality. And I think this is true for everybody. I don't. I don't think one side can claim yeah. necessarily to be more rational than another. We can all rationalize our positions, and they they aren't necessarily going to be uh, airtight, empirically rational. I mean, I just wish when you were saying that that somehow I could have superimposed the QAnon shaman over you. That would have been, that would have been, I have no special effects on COVID calls, but that would have been, that would have been perfect. That would, let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to James McWilliams today. Can you spare me a few more minutes? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, that was really good. I think, you know, discussion, we got around to populism mm -hmm. um, in ways that I, and brought some things together that I hadn't quite put together yet. I, I want to talk about some other aspects of your work and I want to, um, I'm thinking about your book, Just Food, where locavores get it wrong and how we can truly eat responsibly. And people should uh, check out that book. And I, I thought about that book a lot. Yeah. 
uh, particularly in 2020, when all of a sudden Americans started to learn about their food system. Yeah. And we started to learn that the president can actually command meat workers to stay on the job, mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. if they have a uh, you know, if they're illegal immigrants and they're mm-hmm. afraid to yeah. raise any questions about their health. And, and the, these moments, various different moments in 2020, we saw the vulnerability of laborers in yeah. California, you know, picking fruit and vegetables all over the American South, poultry workers, um, meat workers. And then we also learned that it is possible even for American supermarkets to end up with some bare shelves. So there was one part of it that I thought of you uh, just around supply chain and American food supply chain. But then there was the other part, which was maybe a slightly nicer story, mm-hmm. which was this moment that lasted about three months. It's like a whole different pandemic. Like we've lived through so many pandemics, but this pandemic with the people who had the means to be at home and mm-hmm. the financial wherewithal to do it, they started cooking and they were gardening. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they were going out and seeing animals in nature, and they were thinking about like, what do animals eat? Oh my god, I had no idea. I'm part of an ecosystem. There's bugs. Right. I was right. doing a COVID call with a natural, with a scientist, with a yeah. with a, a expert in American birds, and we were talking, and he said, "Oh, there's a there's a woodpecker outside your window. He could hear it through the COVID through the yeah. through the Zoom call." I was like, "What?" What are you talking about? We just had these kind of reconnections to our ecosystem and our food system. And I thought, wow, we really need needed this a while ago. Hmm. (laughs) So I'm kind of shocked. That's that's a very optimistic, I think. uh, I'm trying. After that whole jam on Alex Jones, I needed a moment to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure I I guess, you know, that um, if we've ever had an opportunity to slow down our lives, the pandemic has provided it with, without question. And there are many benefits that perhaps temporarily came from that being in better touch with the ecosystems around us might certainly be one of those. Um, I guess what shocks me is how quickly we like sped back up. In other words, like, okay, fine. Like there was this moment where we did slow down. We had to slow down. We couldn't fly you know, like as easily as we used to, we were working from home. Uh, We didn't have to commute into work. Like if there ever was a pretext for just kind of retrenching a little bit and and, and re-examining the way that we live our lives and and re-examining these fundamental relationships we have to, for example, our food system, the pandemic provided it. Um, But what I saw during the pandemic was not so much a kind of sustained reflection on how we live our lives and how we might live our lives more in tune with the natural world, but basically how we could get back to normal as quickly as possible. And I think about, um, you know, instead of perhaps going out and shopping as much as we did, we didn't say, Hey, maybe I don't, maybe I don't need to consume as much as I consume. We just came home and got on Amazon you know, and, and, and continued our consumer behavior. And I mean, it's asking a lot, I think to uh, uh, it's asking a lot to expect um, people who are so accustomed to living lives of such material comfort, comparative material comfort to make changes and voluntary changes in 
those those lives in in the way that we consume. And I think in a lot of ways for me, the pandemic, because it was such an opportunity to rethink our relationship with the environment and because as I see it, our response was to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Um, I think it highlights one of the most problematic assumptions within the mainstream environmental movement, which, which again is that personal behavior or, um, you know, changes in our personal behavior are what's going to ultimately lead to beneficial environmental outcomes. When I look at the scale of the problems with climate change, when I, when I you know, just again, look at the, the, the research showing the kind of trouble that our planet is in. And then when I look at the behaviors that we often engage in to confront that problem, I, I do see a kind of similar irrationality as I see in people who, uh, you know, are kind of believe the election was stolen. In other words, like the behavior and the evidence are so different. So, you know, recycling and buying a Tesla and all this. I mean, these these seem to be um, they seem to show and they do show intention, I think, good intentions. But when you look at the scale of the problem, these personal choices are doing very little. And what concerns me is how much meaning we invest in them in terms of thinking they do a lot mm. to alleviate the problem. So unfortunately, my, 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 uh, what I took from the pandemic uh, in terms of the environment is, is, is really that if we're ever going to even begin to confront the mess that we're in, it's going to require large, large scale engineering and technological hmm. fixes. Um, and I really learned this from just food to go back to just food, because one of the like biggest takeaways that I learned from doing that research is the, the devastating environmental impact of um, animal agriculture, in particular beef production. And my recommendation in the book is to radically reduce, if not eliminate, you know, beef. And this was deeply offensive to a lot of um, people on the left and the right. Uh, and I remember taking that evidence and approaching certain environmental organizations like 360.org was one that I approached. And I said, look, like this is very clear. Why are you not advocating a radical reduction in, in meat consumption? Like if you are as committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions as you claim to be, here's an easy way that people can do that. You know, here it is, here are the numbers, here's the evidence. And the response was, you know, no, that's, that's, um, that's asking too much of people. And I, mm. I remember thinking, okay, so we're not, here's this big piece of low hanging fruit that we can, we can, that we can sort of walk off with and do something significant to uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we're not even doing that. And, and I remember at, th at that point thinking, okay, we, people who call themselves environmentalists are really, I think, people who care, care selectively about the environment. And I think there's a difference there because I think being an environmentalist means making a level of, of commitment to personal change that myself included, the vast majority of us are not willing to make. And so I kind of saw that lesson repeated during the, during the pandemic as well. 
Uh, there's some powerful analogy there to what's happening right now around the world, but it's certainly in the United States with the get back to normal, the endemic, the, yeah. you know, the, and so even the CDC and yeah. public health agencies stopping counting, stopping gathering important metrics so that even when the next variant comes, we'll be blind because that power to renormalize is so, is so great culturally. Yeah. Yeah. I do think there's something to that. I do think that, I mean, again, this is one of these paradoxes with climate change is because the vast majority of us don't feel the impact of climate change directly on a daily basis. Whereas we do experience the luxury of living these high energy consuming lifestyles on a daily basis, it's extremely um, natural for us to want to get back to normal because the fact is normal is really comfortable for a lot of people. Normal yeah, sure. is, is, um, is, is reassuring and psychologically quite soothing. And that unfortunately is the problematic because normal is what's causing a lot of this climate change is what's ultimately behind climate change. And, um, but again, I mean, climate change is one of those things where, yeah, we see it on the news, we hear the dire predictions, but you and I are going to go about our daily lives with climate change directly impacting us in a noticeable way. We are going to go about our daily lives saying, man, I like cold beer. I like the, the heat that's coming out of my heater yeah. right now. I like being able to get on a plane and fly wherever I want to go. And that's normal. And that's really nice. Did you watch Don't Look Up? No, I didn't. Yeah, I heard. I know about it, and I, and I you know, I heard an interview with the director. I think it's it's worth it. I yeah. mean, you'll you'll appreciate it, and and it's just it's so much on the nose. But I mean, the premise is it even even with with shown full apocalypse. Yeah, it's still too hard. <laughs> So, so yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think our, I think the fix is going to have to be centralized and highly technological. And, you know, again, I, if I think about with food systems, I, you know, I think about things like vertical farming and these these more tech driven ideas. I, you know, again, I'm quite skeptical of this decentralizing or localizing uh, food systems because, of, uh, well, I, I think the disparities would be stark. Uh, I think yeah. some people would have great access to it, but an abundance of food and others would yeah, A lot of people wouldn't. So just to wrap up here in a second, but just following the trajectory here a little bit. I mean, you're, you're a historian of American food, American food culture, American politics. Um, and you, you've made a turn now and you're working on a project about art. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, about a poet. And I wonder, I mean, that's maybe, a lot of times I find myself following your direction. I wonder if I'm going to start, you know, because I'm not totally fatalistic about disaster policy in America, but I'm getting there. And I really do feel like yeah. art and engagement with the world of ideas and the irrational, the intentionally irrational might be our only hope. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like I did work on food issues for a long time and 
in some ways, my interest in Southern culture and, and art precedes that. But I got really interested in the food stuff and um, in some ways kind of got hijacked by it because it was so um, engaging, but it was popular. People wanted to read about it. And so I you know, got a gig writing a few articles a month for The Atlantic and that sort of pulled me away from this this interest in in what I you know what I've always had an interest in, in southern culture but um you know back to your point I vividly remember actually it was in 2016 I think so I had been at it about 7 years and I remember I was writing another like yet another article about looking at some of the uh research around GMOs, genetically modified food mm. seeds, and it's a very controversial topic. And I remember finding myself, I was writing the article and I thought, I've, I've said this, like I've, I've tr been trotting this evidence out now um, for a good seven years. And I'm pretty convinced I have changed zero minds. You know, I mean, I, the, the, I, I had this sort of radical sense of my own ineffectuality. And this goes back to what we opened the discussion with is it's very hard to convince somebody of, so, of something they don't want to be convinced of. And I just thought, Oh, I think I'm done with this. <laughs> you know? And I read recently about some climate scientists who are actually finished writing articles about climate change. Cause nobody's listening to them. Nobody's changing their behavior. Nobody's responding to them. So I think this is actually something that anybody who engages in kind of public debate that has to do with something like the environment or something like public health um, has to face at some point, which is that um, you, your, your impact might be might be a lot less than you think it is. Um, and I certainly came to that realization. And so I thought, well, hey, I'm just going to be totally self-centered and focus on what really interests me and what excites me from the inside out and not try to go out and convince anybody of anything, but just um, hmm. you know, delve into something that gives me great satisfaction. And, you know, I've been working on this biography of the Southern poet for four years now, Frank Stanford, and it's, it's been deeply rewarding. And the paradox is that I, you know, the irony in some ways is that I'm not doing this for anybody really except myself and a small group of people who really want to see this poet canonized. So it's, this is, this is a much smaller ambition than trying to convince people to stop eating meat, for example. Yeah, right. and, and, and frankly, the social consequences of it are much nicer. You find a community of people who are poets and want to talk about the poet that you yeah. love, help yeah. you put the story together and it's just socially much more satisfying than arguing with people about the ethics of eating meat or harming animals and i don't know man people just don't want to be i don't want to be told what to do and other people feel i think rightly the same way i don't have any answers when it comes to shifting public opinion i guess it happens public opinion gets shifted but i don't know that anybody can really explain how well, I think a lot of times it's shifted by art. It's shifted in in a million imperceptible ways and cultural shifts. Um, you know, I mean, I'm not. A, this is not an original observation that 
Trump got his Trump was a he was a he was a he was a buffoon and then he he got made by reality TV. <laughs> well, so the cultural I mean, forces out there art art necessarily, but yeah. Well, it's a yeah, form of entertainment right. for sure. From an American perspective, maybe it's art. But but well, let's no, go. I think actually you're onto something there like entertainment, like yeah, coming at an issue, yeah, through through a kind of an entertainment venue or a cultural venue of some sort might be one way to shift shift position, but it's not coming at people with direct arguments is not the way to do it. And I, and, and the problem with art is I do find it, I do find it. Um, I find, I find I'm skeptical of art that is overtly political in, in general. I, I think, I think, I think that um, art can have a political impact, but I think it's probably most effective when it's not trying to have a political impact. Frank Stanford. Yeah, he he was well, born in Mississippi. He was he lived in Mississippi, uh, Tennessee, and Arkansas. But you know, he only lived twenty nine years, and he, uh, you know, he wrote poetry that's very Whitman esque in some ways, in a very different context. So you think of Whitman in you know in Brooklyn uh, or in New York in Manhattan. Uh, Frank Stanford had a kind of generosity of spirit in terms of listening to all kinds of voices and being fascinated in all kinds of people. Um, so there's a real sort of democratic quality to his focus, but, you know, he's writing kind of backwoods poetry. It's mm -hmm. a very different setting, but a similar mentality. Um, and it's the kind of poetry that people who don't read poetry like, and there's an accessibility there that I also find pretty appealing about him. I think poetry is having a little bit of a moment right now. You watch the inauguration. I mean, yeah, yeah, Amanda Gorman. Um, that was great. It was well performed. There's no question. And I think what what I think was, was a nice reminder there that, I mean, you know, uh, poetry has ultimately its origins are in uh, an oral tradition, a, a kind of performative tradition. Yeah. And I think I think Amanda Gorman was a nice reminder of that because I think what was so uh, moving about her 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 moment in the spotlight was um, was the expressiveness of it was what she did with those words. Um, I think if anybody just sat with a blank page, sat with a page of the poetry and read it, it wouldn't have the effect that it has seeing her perform it. Not all poetry, poetry is that way. Some poetry just sparkles on the page. But I think a lot of it really comes alive when it's when it's performed, when it's read. Did Stanford? What was his interaction with with readers, if anything, or was he more hermetic? And, and he was he was entirely hermetic, and he uh, struggled. He had personal struggles, demons. He had many mental issues, mental health issues for sure. But he had no interest in. There's no not a single. That's not true. There's one recorded example of him reading a poem that's it wow oh, one of his poems um and you know he um really avoided self-consciously avoided uh the spotlight and there was a little bit of a romanticism to his i just want to sort of hide in a cabin in the backwoods of arkansas and churn out massive amounts of poetry and let the world take it away. And, you know, the world didn't take it away. The fact is the poets who become well-known 
promote themselves and they play the game, the Poe mm. business, as it's called. <laughs> he had he yeah. had no interest in in that. And this is not true just for poetry. I think it's true. It's true for academics. I mean, in our world, it's not it's not necessarily the best work that gets promoted to fame. It's the people who know how to promote their work. And um, so that's not, not something that's specific to the obscure world of poetry, but he had no interest in, in playing that game and was probably personally incapable of doing it. Hmm. So we're going to wrap up now. Um, just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and, uh, been talking to James McWilliams today about a lot of different things, which I knew we would. Yeah. Um, so you're working on the, the Stanford book and that's absorbing most of your time. It's sort of last question. You told me you were spending a lot of time in New Orleans. I've had so many guests yeah. on because I've been tracking, always tracking disaster issues in, yeah. in the Gulf South and, and New Orleans has, it's just like everything. It's had its own trajectory with the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think New Orleans is one of the most fascinating places in the world. It's certainly, in my mind, the most interesting city in the in the United States. I don't think I've ever been in a place that's so just temperamentally defined by disaster. What I mean by that is, like, there's not a single person who lives in New Orleans who is not thinking about disaster on some level. It's like it's a little wheel always turning. And yeah. Yeah, there's a Pompeii quality to it for sure. Absolutely. And you know what? That can have some interesting consequences. Yes, they know how to handle a disaster. They know how to get out of town if they need to get out of town. They know, but they also know that on some level, I think it's like life is short. Life disaster is real. And there's, I think, a lot of the embrace of, you know, the parades and the kind of the the Bacchanalian side of New Orleans culture, the, the the commitment to having fun is very much linked up with this temperament defined mm -hmm. by, hey, we're in a disaster zone and that levee over there could 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 break or that lake on the other side of the river could flood us again. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the last hurricane, Ida, I guess it was, which was mm -hmm. like, what, a few months ago, six yeah. months ago, um, was in some ways, um, you know, I think it was kind of a boost for the morale of the city because because the levy the levy repairs sort of did what it they did what they were supposed to do, and I think people took a big big sigh of relief from that. But nobody's complacent in that city. No, so, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, I'm jealous that you're getting to spend some time there. Yeah, and I yeah. uh, can't yeah. wait to see this book, and I can't wait to be with you in person again at some point uh, in the not too distant future. Yeah, good. Well, really nice to be on the show. Keep up yeah. the good. Thanks everybody for tuning in and stay healthy. We will see you next time on COVID calls. And thanks again to my guest, James McWilliams.